Well, happy uh, 504th Reformation Day. For anyone uh, who doesn't know, because uh, we do have uh, new people who have come to this church over the past year, uh, today is what's called Reformation Day. When Martin Luther uh, posted his 95 theses to the door of the church, he pastored in Wittenberg on October 31st, 1517. And uh, so he was a Catholic monk and a professor who took uh, some, pro- uh, he took issue with some of the abuses that the Catholic Church um, was practicing in that day. And so what he did was he wrote 95 points of dispute and he, he nailed them to the church door, which in that day was kind of like putting up a public notice on a bulletin board. And he only wanted to start an academic discussion with fellow professors. Um, what he didn't anticipate was some uh, enthusiastic young men coming and taking down the theses while he wasn't looking and without his permission printing them and s- distributed them all through Germany. And, and eventually this made it all the way to the Vatican where the Pope um, saw what was going on. And you can imagine how that went, uh, consider the fact that we are here as Protestants, not Catholics, and you can imagine, um, you know, what Luther was up against. It would be kind of like us going to Congress and posting a notice to reduce taxes. It just, it, it would go over like a ton of bricks. So, well, at the heart of the Reformation, which we honor today and every day that we preach the gospel, is this glorious truth that our salvation from sin and hell is by faith in Jesus Christ alone. That's really what was at issue. Our salvation is by grace through Jesus Christ alone. It's by faith, it's not by works. It's nothing that we bring to God, it's what he supplies fully for us through his son, Jesus Christ. It's a salvation that we see held out for us in scripture alone, and it's salvation that is for the glory of God alone. That's what we celebrate when we celebrate the Reformation. I'm grateful for Martin Luther. But perhaps it would surprise you to learn that Martin Luther, even while he was a monk and studying theology, hated God. He hated God. Why? I'm glad you asked. Let me tell you. So we've been studying the Sermon on the Mount when I preach. And this summer, uh, we came to a verse that's actually pretty weighty. And if you had actually opened your scriptures to Matthew chapter 5, we're going to look at verse 48 and recall this little verse at the heart of the Sermon on the Mount that we studied. Um, It's a short verse. But it's one that if we actually take it seriously, kind of flattens us. Matthew 5 and verse 48 says, You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Oh, is that all? (laughs) Okay, well, what's next? Uh, Nothing, because if you don't do that, you're going to hell. Okay, well, now we have something to deal with. These are serious words. Because what Jesus is saying here at the heart of the Sermon on the Mount is if you're not perfect as the Father, then you can't be accepted by the Father. Okay? Martin Luther took that seriously. And he knew that he could never wash away his sins by his good works. He could never be perfect before the Holy Father in heaven. And so he hated him. It was more than Luther could bear. Because he didn't understand yet that our salvation is all of grace, not of works. And I don't think Martin Luther is alone in that struggle. Um, Have you ever wondered how you could come before a holy God 
and stand. Do you ever feel like, even as a Christian, that the Father looks at you with a frown, that he's disappointed in you because can't you figure that sin out yet? Perhaps you struggle the way that Luther did to see the mercy and grace of God in the midst of his holiness. Because Luther's not alone in seeing God as a vengeful and angry father. I'd venture to guess that in this sanctuary, there are more than a few who have struggled with that view and perhaps even still struggle to see God as your loving father. Maybe it's because your dad was an angry man and didn't treat you the way that you should have been treated as somebody who was made in the image of God and should have been protected by your dad. For many people, the idea of calling God Father is really kind of a, a huge hurdle because they have had nothing but pain in their experience of fatherhood. Well, today we're beginning an in-depth look at the Lord's Prayer, the most famous of all prayers in the history of the world, and I hope that as we dive into it, what you'll see is that God is good and that if you're in Christ, he loves you more than you can possibly know. I hope that you'll see that if you struggle to come to God as Father, you can actually, seeing who he is, who Jesus says the Father is, come and lay your burden down before him and know joy. I hope that if you're here and you don't know if you know God as your Father, that by the end of our service today, you will know how God can be your Father if you would come to him through Jesus Christ, his Son. So, Wherever you are in your relation to God and in your relation to prayer, we're looking at the Lord's Prayer, I want you to move forward today with the confidence and joy of drawing near to God for who he is and for what he's done for your salvation in Jesus Christ. That's my aim. And if God is gracious to us, and he is, I believe that can be what happens. So let us look together at the Lord's Prayer. And we'll begin in verse 9 of chapter 6, okay? Matthew 6 and verse 9, we'll go down through verse 13. And if you're reading the English Standard Version, there is a footnote at the end of verse 13 that I believe is an authentic part of this prayer, and I'm going to read that too. So, here it is, the Lord's Prayer. These are the words of Jesus. He says, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. We know those words inside out. We've said them many times. They may have been some of the first words that you learned in church as a kid, if you went to church as a kid. And today we're going to be looking at the first, uh, the first eight words of verse 9. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven. And in these eight words, we see that we must pray to our loving and exalted Father through Christ the Son by the Spirit. Okay, that's what we see here. We must pray to our loving and exalted Father through Christ the Son by the Spirit. So knowing that, let's dive into the goodness of God together. Well, see, one of the most pressing questions for any Christian is how to truly draw near to God in prayer. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, you know how pressing this is. How do you draw near to God in prayer? Few questions are so important as that. This gets at the heart of many of our spiritual struggles, and I know there are many here for whom prayer is a real struggle. 
far from being a joy and a delight, it becomes a burden and something that you do because you know that you must. Jesus commands it. You want to obey because you love him. But boy, you really wish you could get the hang of it. Well, friends, Jesus here in the Lord's Prayer is setting out to teach us, his disciples, how to pray. So, how do we pray? Well, the first thing we see here in Matthew 6, 9 is that we must pray purposefully. We must pray purposefully. And yes, we saw that last time, but it comes up again here in verse 9. We must pray purposefully. How do we know? Jesus said, pray then like this. Okay, pray then like this. And in that word, then, Jesus is actually directing our attention back to what he said just before in verses 5 through 8 when he taught us how not to pray. When he taught us how not to pray. He taught us not to pray for the attention of others, not to make much of us, but to be solely for and about God in our prayers. He also taught us not to pray with rambling words that go on like the pagans babble and have more to do with magic incantations than Christian prayer. Verses six through seven, or I'm sorry, verses seven through eight, if you look there, he said, when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. And in contrast to that rambling and babbling prayer, he says, pray then like this. And then he he teaches us how. And he teaches us we must pray purposefully, giving all of our attention to God when we pray and meaning what we say. Purposeful prayer pleases the Father because it puts away all distractions and comes before him with our whole devotion. Getting back to the Luther household for a moment, they always had people over for dinner. They were famously hospitable. And a number of Luther students who would have dinner wrote down things that happened at the dinner table. And one of his students wrote down this one particular instance of something that happened with a family dog. And he thought, boy, this, you know, where Luther went with it actually I think does a great job of illustrating to us uh, what purposeful prayer looks like. So here, here's the account. It says, when Luther's puppy happened to be at the table, he looked for a morsel from his master and watched with open mouth and motionless eyes. And those of you with dogs know exactly what he's talking about. Luther said, oh, if I could only pray the way this dog watches the meat. All his thoughts are concentrated on the piece of meat. Otherwise, he has no thought, wish, or hope. <laughs> Practical theology from a puppy. You see, in contrast to the babbling prayers of people who don't know the one true God, Jesus says, pray then like this. And then he teaches us what we call the Lord's Prayer, which is a purposeful prayer with a laser-sharp focus on God. And by the way, we should keep in mind that when Jesus teaches us the Lord's Prayer, he doesn't teach us a, uh, a, a rote prayer that we're just to con- you know, keep repeating. Um, and, and some people do. They use the Lord's Prayer that way. They just they repeat it and they think, okay, I've been obedient because I prayed the Lord's Prayer. But friends, Jesus says, pray then like this. He doesn't say pray this. He says pray like this. He's giving us categories for prayer so that we would know what purposeful prayer looks like. Many people actually turn the Lord's Prayer into the kind of babbling, thoughtless formula that Jesus is teaching us not to pray like. Okay, so we want to use the Lord's Prayer the right way. And we want to use it purposefully. But we also must pray regularly. We see that here in verse 9. And we see that in the word pray. Well, okay, so you grammar folks, what part of speech is the word pray? 
there we go, we have like three grammar folks. And, and they are right, it's a verb, it's a verb. And it's imperative, which means it's a command. And it's in the present tense, which is Jesus letting us know that praying should be our regular habit, okay? So how is your habit? How's your habit? If you're a disciple of Jesus, do you pray regularly or do you pray rarely? Far too many pray rarely. And if I had to pro share probably my deepest burden for you as one of your pastors, and my deepest burden for my family, my deepest burden for me, it would be this, that we together with being people of the word would be people of prayer. That we'd be people of prayer. And I know that when in my own life I come into a season of sickness or uh, chaos or busyness, especially busyness, that, that, that prayer is usually one of the first casualties. Um, is it that way for you? I, I feel like it might be. Because if we take Jesus seriously, we must pray purposefully and we must pray regularly. And my encouragement to you is that no matter what it is that's going on, even if it's just an awareness through those times of chaos that God is with you and so you turn to him in moments of sadness and sorrow, we cannot afford to give up prayer. We can't do that because prayer is part of knowing God and we must know God. We must know God. And in addition to praying purposefully and regularly as we know God, we, the third thing that we see in verse 9 about how to draw near to God is that we must draw near with prayer that is biblical. We must pray biblically. Now, what I'm going to say is not popular, but I'm going to say it because it's true. There is a right way to pray, and there is a wrong way to pray. Okay? There's a right way to pray and there's a wrong way to pray. The right way to pray is the kind of prayer that God teaches us in the Bible and absolutely the kind of prayer that Jesus teaches us in the Lord's Prayer. He says, pray then like this. What's implied? Don't pray like that, pray like this. And we've already seen how not to pray. Right? You know, for the praises of man or with rambling words that we're really kind of, you know, we're checked out and we're wondering what's going on in our email, but, but we know that we're, we're here to pray because we, we're good Christians. God takes how we approach him very seriously. Okay, if there's one thing that we see, um, you know, in the Bible, uh, other than the gospel, <laughs> it's that God, he actually cares how we approach him. He is the Holy One. Maybe earlier last year in your Old Testament Bible read-through, you came across Leviticus 10, and you remember that Aaron's sons, the priests, Nadab and Abihu, they approached God in a way that was in, in direct disobedience to the way that God had commanded them to approach him in his holiness. And what happened to them in their high-handed disregard of God is that they were consumed by fire. Now, don't be afraid. I haven't heard of any Christians um, since the cross being consumed by fire for approaching God wrongly, but it does communicate something, doesn't it? We come before the Holy One, and he cares how we come. Uzziah, when he was accompanying the ark with King David back to Jerusalem, he, uh, they, they were transporting the ark in a way they shouldn't have been, and, and they knew better. They had the scriptures. They just didn't heed them, and the ark was you know, it was tipping. And so with what I assume is a really good intention, Uzziah reaches out and touches the ark. You don't do that. He died on the spot. God cares how we approach him. 
He cares how we approach him. And in an age when far too many people, like I, when I was growing up, this sticker, boy, I'm glad I haven't seen any lately. Jesus is my homeboy. Thank you. That's how we should respond. Are you kidding me? And there were hats, and that's not the God that we approach. And Jesus is nobody's homeboy. He is Lord. And we must approach him as such. Yes, we worship a good and gracious God, absolutely. And we worship a holy God. Those two things, his goodness, his intimacy, his grace to you, is not in contrast to his holiness. It's in his holiness. And so we have this tension of a God we love and are, are so we treasure him and we fear him because he is holy. We must never forget that. So biblical prayer is prayer that recognizes God's holiness, and it's God-centered. You see, many, if not most Christians, just by default, they rush into the presence of God with requests and prayers, and please, Father, do this, 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 and this. Amen. But what we see here in the Lord's Prayer is that the first half of the prayer is exalting God. It's praying for his kingdom to come, for his name to be hallowed, that we would do his will. It's squarely God-centered. And then we present our petitions. So, this is how we draw near to God in prayer, purposefully, regularly, biblically, God-centeredly. And that's what Jesus means when he says, pray then like this. Pray in these ways. Which brings us now into the actual words of the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven. And in these words, Jesus teaches us to whom we draw near in prayer. We'll first look at what it means to draw near to our loving Father. We'll look at what it means to draw near to our loving Father. See, when Jesus teaches us to come to God the Father, there are so many beautiful truths that are showering down on us right now, and they are fragrant showers. But perhaps the truth more than any other that comes before us here in these words, our Father in heaven, is the truth of divine adoption. Divine adoption is what we sang about when we, when we sang how deep the Father's love for us. That he should make a wretch his treasure. That's divine adoption. It's what the Apostle John gets excited about in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 1 when he says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us. That we should be called children of God. And so we are. So we are. This, this is the kind of love the Father has given to us, that we would be called his children in love. This, okay, this is divine adoption. If you want it in a succinct definition, it is this. In love, the Father brings redeemed sinners into his family and gives them all the privileges and blessings of being his children. Friends, in love, the Father brings redeemed sinners into his family and gives them all the privileges, all the blessings of being his children. Think about that. Think about that and consider your spiritual condition apart from Christ. Consider that apart from Christ, you were and I were born enemies of God, sinning freely, hostile to God, wanting nothing to do with him. In fact, being his enemies, hating him, the scripture says. Condemned to death, condemned to hell. Why? Because he is holy and we hate him. But in love, God looked on sinners like us, brought us into his family. We who had no right, no natural claim, no, no inheritance at all, except condemnation, 
called Children's of Wrath in Ephesians 2, and that was what God looked at and then brought into his family. Divine adoption. Divine adoption. You see, when we think about doctrine, too often we see words that we don't use that often, like divine adoption. And we open up a systematic theology, and we read about five pages, and we go, okay, good to know. But what's behind those five pages? Scriptures that teach us that. Theology is not boring. It is life. Divine adoption. It is people like us in that situation whom God so loved that he gave his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. It's people like us in that condition of being God's enemies and children of the devil, Jesus says. Okay, talk about having a bad dad. Children of the devil. Okay. It's people like us in that condition that God not only makes righteous through Christ and forgives, he not only declares us justified and pardoned, but then he brings us close. He brings us close. That's what divine adoption means. And there are three aspects of that that we need to consider. The first of which is that our adoption by the Father is through the Son. It's through the Son. You see, one of the most beautiful Bible passages about our salvation is found in Ephesians 1. Listen to what the Apostle tells us in Ephesians 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him, in Jesus, okay, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. <laughs> God the Father is the one who adopts undeserving sinners like us into his family, and he chose to do it before he created anything. How much does God love you? He loves you eternally. He loves you eternally. He knew that you and I would sin and incur guilt. He knew all that you would ever do more than you could possibly have discovered that you've done. And he said, I love you. In fact, I'm going to send my son, who's going to take account of every single one of those sins, and he's going to make an end of them. He's going to make an end of them. Paul says that this adoption comes through Jesus Christ. And what does that mean? It means, friends, that apart from the gospel, nobody can call God Father. It's a popular misconception that God is the father of all people equally. That is not true. Yes, he's the creator of all. All are his offspring in the sense that he created them. But only those who come to him through Christ, believing the gospel, can call him father. Everybody else is pretending. And they're in for a rude awakening unless they repent and believe. This is why Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
We're adopted by the Father through the Son, and in this way we become children of God. Or as Paul says in Ephesians and elsewhere, sons of God. Don't get hung up, women, on this sons of God business. It is quite a privilege because the New Testament uses that term, sons of God, in the sense that in the first century and in that culture, sons had an esteemed position of inheritance rights. And so all of us, boys and girls, men and women who are in Christ are sons of God in the sense that we are co-heirs with Christ. Everything the Father has is ours. Divine adoption. Christ is God's eternal, only begotten Son. We are adopted sons. Jesus is is the Father's unique Son. We are his redeemed, finite sons who are brought into his family through that one-of-a-kind Son. Okay, That's what's going on. And the Holy Spirit is involved as well. The Holy Spirit isn't absolutely involved because God is Trinity. And unless we know God as Trinity, then we don't know God at all. And so we are adopted by the Father through the Son. And the scriptures teach us that by the Spirit, we call out to God as Father because the Spirit confirms the reality of our adoption. He confirms the reality of our adoption. In Galatians 4, we see that our adoption is a Trinitarian adoption. When the apostle writes this, he says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. My friends, if you're in Christ, you are adopted by a loving father and his spirit dwells within you. And it is because his spirit dwells within you that you cry out, Abba, which is a term of paternal intimacy. We come to God as our loving, near father. This is what theologians call God's eminence. He is near and he is near for good. His nearness to us is our good. And so it says in Ephesians 2.18, For through Christ we both have access in one spirit to the Father. We come to a triune God. And I'm sure at some point as we're getting into the Lord's Prayer and Jesus says, Pray like this, our Father, that somebody is asking, Are you saying it's wrong to pray to Jesus or the Holy Spirit? That's kind of a sidetrack, so I'm not really going to go there, except to simply say this. We come to God as Trinity. And God as Trinity loves you. And we see People in scripture praying to Jesus. We see petition to the Holy Spirit. And by and large, as a pattern, we come to the Father through the Son and by the Spirit. And in order to do justice to what Jesus means when he teaches us to pray our Father, we must also add this, and this is a third point that I would add. We are saved into his family. We are saved into his family. So many Christians think it's just them and God. They don't, you know, they can have Jesus but leave the church. That's not how Jesus comes to us. A head always comes attached to a body. We are the body of Christ. Never have a body without a head. Always a bad idea, okay? Same goes spiritually. When Jesus says, pray to our Father, he's teaching us that we are adopted into God's family, that we come as an our In fact, there's not a single personal pronoun, not a singular pronoun in the entire Lord's Prayer. The whole thing is corporate. And that shows the priority of being part of the body of Christ. Some families in this church know the beauty of adoption. 
My family also knows adoption. My sister and her husband adopted our first nephew, Finley, some years ago. And when they adopted Finley, they went down to Texas to bring into our family a baby boy who had no natural right or claim. I mean, he, he didn't even know they existed. And when he was adopted, he became as much a part of our family as any of the kids who were born into the family. But listen to this, he was not adopted in isolation. Yes, he was the only child who was adopted in, but he was adopted into the, the family. <laughs> it was never just Finley and his parents. It was Finley and his parents and the whole family. That's how adoption works, and it's the case with our adoption by the Father. There's no such thing as a Christian who can say rightly, it's just me and God. God's always with his people. To be a Christian is to be adopted into the family of God, and that family gathers as the church. And so we must be committed members of the body of Christ if we're going to honor this adoption that we've been given because it's kind of the nature of the whole thing. Okay, we're adopted by the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit, into his family. And that idea of divine adoption is the main idea communicated in the words, our Father. But it's not the only idea communicated by the words, our Father. There's also a second idea, and that is divine care. Divine care. Friends, this is sweet. To call God Father is not only to remember your adoption, but it's to remember God's divine care for you. Whatever your earthly dad is or isn't, or was or wasn't, to call God Father is an intimate thing, and it means that he loves you, and he'll never let you down. He is a good father. He cares for you. And so if you had an experience that makes you shy away from calling him father, I would plead with you to see that he was the first one. Whoever your dad was, he came second. He may have failed, but God never does. We come and call God father, and he is a good father, and he cares for you. Not even a hair of your head falls to the ground without him taking notice, he tells us. So, that tells me you can trust him with your heart. You can trust him with your heart. Pray then like this, our Father. And then take a deep sigh of relief because that's good. That's really good. And so we've seen Jesus telling us that we must pray to our loving Father through the Son and by the Spirit. But there's another element to biblical prayer that we see here in these first four words of the Lord's Prayer. And it's shown to us in the words, in heaven. Okay, he's our Father in heaven. You see, in these words, we draw near not just to the loving Father, but we draw near to the exalted Father. Okay, we draw near to the exalted Father. If theologians called the other thing God's imminence, that he's near, okay, this is what they call God's transcendence. In other words, God's not like us. And look around, friends, aren't you glad? Aren't you so glad that God is not like us? We tend to make a mess of things. God never does. He is transcendent. Yes, we do draw near to him with intimate love as his children through Christ, but we must never forget that in the words of Isaiah, we draw near to the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. Whose name is holy. So true biblical prayer is prayer to our loving and exalted Father through Christ, the Son, by the Spirit. A prayer that is both tender and familiar, as well as filled with holy reverence. What's the beginning of wisdom? <laughs> the 
fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And if that's the case, then the fear of the Lord is an awfully good thing. And so we can have God as Father with the fear of the Lord. Not terrified, but realizing that though he is good toward us always, as C.S. Lewis wrote of Aslan, he's not a tame lion. Okay? We come before God. And that's how we draw near to the Father. And so you see, friends, there's a whole lot packed into those four words, our Father in heaven. There's a whole lot packed into all the words of the Lord's Prayer. Okay? And I look forward to exploring them. But today I would simply ask you to consider how you draw near to your Father in heaven. Yes, he is our Father in heaven, but he is, if you are in Christ, your Father in heaven. And you know him personally. So how are you drawing near to your Father? Are you drawing near to your Father? You see, we come here full circle to the beginning of the sermon when we looked at those first four words, pray then like this. Jesus commands us to pray regularly and to pray biblically. And so, what are some practical ways that we, as adopted children of the Father, can actually pray biblically and regularly? And I would suggest to you that it's as simple as ABC. And I like that. We could all use a little simple. A, if God is our exalted Father, then adore him. Mathematically, that makes sense, right? A plus B equals C. If God is Father, then we should what? Adore him. He is worthy of adoration. He is high and lifted up. And that makes sense. And that's exactly what we see in the first petition of the Lord's Prayer, which we're going to get into next time. Hallowed be your name. We adore our Father. So by and large, as a habit, okay, this isn't a steadfast rule because we see God's people always praying prayers throughout the day, but we also see them coming before God for periods of prayer regularly. And when you do that, challenge yourself to make it your habit to adore God before you do anything else. When you come into his presence, remember who it is that you pray to. Adore him and then move on from there. Next, B, believe the gospel. I mean two things by that. See, friends, first, there's no way, as we saw, to have God as your Father except by turning from sin and believing in Christ alone. And if you're here today and you don't know if God is your Father through Christ, then now I would plead with you, come to him, acknowledging your sin and your need for his Son. Believe the gospel. Believe that Jesus was given for your sins, that he rose, having justified you, and receives you to the Father as the father's child. Believe the gospel. And if you want to know more about the gospel, then talk to me. Talk to an elder. Any church member here knows the gospel. Talk to them. Or if you'd prefer, there in the lobby are some little leaflets called the only solution to the greatest problem. They're on the counter. Take one. Come back. Keep coming back. Believe the gospel. But second, for those of us who are children of the Father, we need to also believe the gospel. Repenting and believing may be how the show got started, but it's also how it finishes. Okay, it's all the way to glory. (laughs) Repent and believe in the gospel. And sometimes, as Christians, we are tempted to look at the Father as somebody who is frowning on us because we, the more we grow in Christ, become more aware of our sins. And the more aware of our sins we become, Here's the sticky wicked. If we forget the gospel at any point along the way, it drives us to despair. 
we cannot afford to forget the gospel because otherwise the sins that we are more convicted of will crush us. But thanks be to God, Jesus made an end of them all. Thanks be to God, the Father loves us all the way through and up and down. Remember and believe the gospel. He wants you with him. He chose you before you even knew who he was. Believe the gospel. And then see, come. Come, come to the Father. If you would come to the Father, this is, this is huge. You might want to write this down. If you would come to the Father, you need to come to the Father. <laughs> Stop making excuses about prayer being hard or your schedule being full or your mind wandering. Come. Come to the exalted Father who loves you through Jesus Christ, his Son, who gives his Spirit to you. The best way to pray is to pray. Don't wait to get it perfect, otherwise you'll never pray. Just come. I look forward to exploring what this means in great detail as we look at the Lord's Prayer. But for now, let's make good use of it by coming to the Father. In fact, let's do it now. Please join me in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we praise and thank you that you are good, that you are holy, that you love us. The gift of our salvation and our adoption is nothing we could ever purchase, nothing we could ever even conceive of, but you conceived of it in eternity and you brought it to pass. We thank you. Help us to come through Jesus and by your spirit, crying out, Abba, Father. We love you. May we grow in our love for you and may all who want you as Father but do not have you as Father be drawn near to you. Through Jesus we pray, amen.